Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series on the way of Jesus, and today we're going to be looking at how Jesus was a friend of sinners. I'm sure nobody here at Wellspring knows anything about being a sinner, so probably just be you know just right over our you know right over us. But this past week, I was thinking about some people who are really good at this. You know, who who's someone that's really good at engaging people and you know reaching out to others? Who's someone that's really good at asking questions and being a true friend? And the most obvious person that came to mind was Michael Scott um, of the paper company Dunder Mifflin. Um, I'm sure, I know many of us are familiar with Michael. And so um, I did a little research and came across some great quotes from Michael that I want to share with you guys about what it means to truly be a friend. Here's some things Michael had to say. He said, presents are the best way to show someone how much you care. It is like this tangible thing that you can point to and say, hey man... I love you this many dollars worth. He went on to say, The most sacred thing I do is care and provide for my workers, my family. I give them money. I give them food. Not directly, but through the money, I heal them. And if you're familiar with the show, you'll appreciate this comment. Jim and I are great friends. We hang out a ton, mostly at work. He said, I guess the atmosphere I've tried to create here is that I'm a friend first, a boss second, and probably an entertainer third. So I'm sure we have a lot of life lessons to learn from Michael Scott. But on a more serious note, I have to admit, standing up here today, that this was a difficult sermon for me to write on being a friend to sinners. I feel like I'm not qualified to be up here, and so I'm preaching to myself. So I just want that to be just put out in the open, that I do not feel qualified to be up here teaching on how Jesus was a friend of sinners and what that means for us today. And one of the reasons this issue, this topic, is difficult for me because I grew up in a Christian family. Um, I went to church every Sunday, and I went to a private Christian school my whole life. And through various influences, family, you know, church pastors, school teachers, whatever it might be, it was kind of instilled in me at a young age to stay away from bad people, right? Stay away from bad people. I can't tell you how many times, Justin... Don't hang out with that group of people. They're always getting into trouble. Stay away from them. Hey, that kid just got caught smoking and drinking. Do not associate yourself with them. You're going to end up, you know, going down the same path. Hang out with good people. Hang out with the good kids, and then you'll turn out to be a good kid. Kind of like the saying goes, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future, if you've heard that before. You know, there's obviously... I want to make this clear. There's obviously seasons and times in our lives where we need to be wise with who we associate with. There's probably times we do need to avoid people or groups of people. A fourth grader doesn't need to be hanging out with kids that are drinking, right, and partying, clearly. You know, if you're someone that has a new Christian that, you know, used to be an alcoholic in college, you probably need to be pretty wise before you start associating with a bunch of people that do that until you're strong enough to resist that temptation. So there's obviously some wisdom. I want to make that clear. But for myself personally, this idea of staying away from bad people carried over into my adult life, even to this present day. Um, You know, I've heard a lot of people, you know, um, a lot of people say, um, you know, hey, Justin, come to this thing. There's going to be a lot of lost people there, non-Christians, and it's a chance to meet people, do this thing, whether it's sports or music. And my default thinking a lot of times is, well, I don't think that'd be very beneficial, I think I could probably get a lot more accomplished if I did something at church 
or with the church or with this Bible study, I don't think that'd be very fruitful, so I'm probably going to do this Christian thing, completely disregarding the fact that Jesus was a friend of sinners. So I'm telling you guys, I'm not qualified to be up here this morning, but you're stuck with me. So my hope today is that you know we can really learn from Jesus' example and kind of discuss the implications of this for our own life. So let's dive in to see what Scripture has to say about this. Open up to Luke 15. I think we have some fancy new pew Bibles. This is our first Sunday. It should be page 951 if if you're using a pew Bible. All right, Luke 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, there's several, all kinds, several things we can learn from this passage The first one I want us to look at is the fact that Jesus welcomed sinners. And what's even more intriguing and interesting than that is, you know, more intriguing than the fact that he welcomed sinners is the fact that they wanted to be around him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. I don't know about you guys, but most people I know that aren't Christians are not getting in line to hear a preacher. But here they are, wanting to give up their time to hear what this preacher man has to say. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Why did they care what he had to say? Why were sinners, these people who did not know God, far from God, why were they drawn to Jesus? What was so compelling about his life that they wanted to experience it for themselves? We know that sinners weren't drawn to Jesus because he watered down the truth. We know that he's All kinds of verses where he's telling people, man, repent of your sins. Repent of your sins and believe in God. As we've learned the past several months, Jesus expressed interest in the lives of people, right? He engaged them. He initiated conversations with them. He was a question asker. He asked over a hundred questions to people in the New Testament. He was a question asker, expressed interest in their lives, When someone had a need, whatever it might be, he did what he could to meet that need, just depending on what their particular situation called for. And this type of 
living, you know, it made people feel loved and valued and interested in what this preacher man had to say. And so if sinners view Jesus this way, we have to ask ourselves, how do sinners view us? How do sinners in St. Joseph view us? How do they perceive us as Christians? And back in 2007, a prominent Christian leader and author, um, Gabe Lyons, did tons of research on this particular issue, interviewing, I think, thousands of people who were non-Christians between the ages of 16 and 29, and he asked them, what perceptions do you have of Christians? When you hear the word Christian, what comes to your mind? And the information he gathered was pretty striking. He said, nine out of ten non-Christians said that anti-homosexual was the first thing that came to their mind when they hear the term Christian. 87% of them said judgmental, and 85% said hypocritical. Anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. I think we can all agree those probably aren't terms that are going to win us an audience, right, with lost people. If that's the way many of them, at least young adults, are viewing most of us. So how do non-Christians in this city view us? If If you're a Christian, you've got to wrestle with this. How do they view you? Would they associate you right now with kind of the judgmental, hypocritical category? Or would they say, your life is so compelling, they're so compelled to the love and compassion that pours out from you through your words, actions, and presence, that they actually want to hear what you have to say. They seek you out. And to be honest, my struggle today is not wrestling with how non-Christians perceive me My struggle is, I'm not honestly sure how many non-Christians actually know me. And that's kind of humbling to admit, um, and a little embarrassing, to be honest, as a pastor. Um, I've spent, growing up my whole life, with Christians, right? It's easy for me as a pastor, too, to spend every waking moment of my week with the people that sit in these pews. Um, I live in this little Christian bubble a lot. My Christian friends, I do my, do my stuff with them while completely disregarding the fact that there's still thousands of people just in this city alone that need to hear of the good news that I've experienced. And so this is something I'm really wrestling with. Um, in my own personal life, I've started trying to honestly think of ways for me to kind of engage lost people. And so God's been telling me to use my gift of music. I mean, a lot of you, a lot of you guys know I'm a drummer. And so I've recently started teaching drum lessons as a chance to meet some kids and their families. Um, He's been working on my heart and telling me to kind of start uh, performing in public a little bit more as a chance to play with musicians who aren't Christians and just mingle with people. And so this is something I'm wrestling with. So I am not qualified to be up here, but you guys are stuck with me. So bear with me this morning. Lord help us, right? This past week I interviewed, I didn't interview, I contacted three young adults here at Wellspring, who have been impacted by the ministry of Young Life. And I asked them, I wanted to know why they were drawn to their leader. I asked them what, they, what was so compelling about their leader that they just kept showing up. They just kept coming around to events or spending time with them. And here's what they told me. Collectively, they said, my leader was always there for me. 
They always pursued me, checked in on me, and made it a point to care about what was going on in my life. They never gave up on me and always seemed to show me unconditional love. They were full of Jesus and always pointed me to Christ when I went through dark times. They were on the Christian journey with me rather than leaving me to figure it out all on my own. I knew I could tell them anything and they would always show me how God would handle the situation. And if that doesn't sound like the way of Jesus, I don't know what does. That was extremely encouraging. So thank you for those who answered my questions and for the leaders here. That was really cool to hear. Um, Let's look again at Luke Luke 15. In verses 3 through 10, we have this fascinating story of a man who lost a sheep. I'm sure many of us can relate to that. I know we've got a lot of sheep herders here, right? At Wellspring, it's probably the, you know, the, uh, the primary occupation for church membership here. A lot of sheep herders. And then we have a woman who lost a silver coin. And what's interesting is how intentional and proactive they searched for what was lost. How intentional they were about searching for what was lost. And after losing one of his sheep, if you look down, verse 4 says, Doesn't he leave the 99 sheep in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And after losing her coin, if you look at verse 8, it says, Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? I think we would all agree that people and their souls are far more important than a sheep, right? Or a silver coin. And so, if we believe that, shouldn't we have the same sense of urgency to seek those that are lost? To search intentionally for those that are lost. In neither story did the man or the woman sit back on their couch and just hope that the sheep would show up. Or hope that somehow, magically, the coin would reappear on her table or on her nightstand. They actively searched for what was lost so that it could be found. And when they found what was lost, what happened? What happened, anybody? What's that? Yes, they rejoiced. There was a huge celebration, right? It says they called their neighbors and friends together and said, Rejoice with me, I found what was lost. And even more importantly is what happens in heaven when they're lost or found. Um... Check out the celebration that takes place. Look at verses 7, I believe. 7 and 10. It says that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. In other words, heaven throws a big stinking party, right? Over one sinner who repents. They bust out the cake, the bells, the whistles, the party hats, the disco balls, the laser lights, whatever people do at parties now. And they throw a huge celebration for one person over one sinner who repents and chooses to put their hope in Christ. And if the angels of heaven make that big of a deal over one sinner who repents, shouldn't we? Shouldn't reaching lost people and pointing them to their father be a major part of our life and mission as Christians? 
as the body of Christ, Christ Church, we've been given not only a responsibility, but the privilege of being Jesus to a hurting world. And a lot of you familiar with, are, you're familiar with a pastor named Bill Hybels. And I want to show a quote here in a second about what he has to say about just the power of just Christ's church. And he also answers uh, the question, what is it that has the power to transform the human heart? What has the power to transform the human heart? And here's what he had to say. I believe that only one power exists on this sorry planet that can do that. It's the power of the love of Jesus Christ. The love that conquers sin and wipes out shame and heals wounds and reconciles enemies and patches broken dreams and ultimately changes the world one life at a time. And what grips my heart every day is the knowledge that the radical message of that transforming love has been given to the church. That means that in a very real way, the future of the world rests in the hands of local congregations like yours and mine. It's the church or it's lights out. Without churches so filled with the power of God that they can't help but spill goodness and peace and love and joy into the world, depravity will win the day, evil will flood the world. But it doesn't have to be that way. Strong, growing communities of faith can turn the tide of history. God is in the business. He mentions reconciliation. God is in the business of reconciliation. He wants to reconcile every person, every human being, and restore them to right relationship with him. He wants every person on this planet to know him and experience his love and goodness. He wants to restore what has been broken in our lives because of sin. And I want us to take a minute, let's just more closely examine God's heart of reconciliation. If you can, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in your Bibles. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, I believe it's page 1054. And this is Paul the Apostle writing. Page 1054. Second Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That God is reconciling sinful people like us to himself 
through Jesus Christ and as his ambassadors, we have the privilege of joining him on that mission of reconciling lost people to their heavenly father. So how do we join him on that mission? How do we play a part in helping reconcile people to their heavenly father? Well, just like Jesus, there's several things. We engage people right where they are. He went right after people, approached them, and started asking them questions. He expressed interest in their life. He wasn't trying to, you know, make them his project or anything like that. He was just genuinely expressing interest in their life. When he saw someone had a need, he did what he could to meet that need, meet that need just given their particular situation. For us, we become the hands and feet. For those that claim to be Christians, we become the hands and feet of Jesus by being their friend without an agenda and by simply showing them how great our God is. And if we're not playing a part in helping reconcile lost people to their Heavenly Father, then we're not joining Him on that mission. This is what Christ is about. If we're not joining Him on that mission, then we're missing out on how, what we were created for. We're called to reconcile lost people to their Heavenly Father. And I hear from a lot of people that, man, I, I don't really know how to engage you know, lost people who believe differently than me. I'm, I'm just always intimidated or, I don't know, it's just very awkward sometimes. I think when we have, I think it becomes much less difficult for us to engage sinners, if you will, when we're truly aware of our own sin. I think that's honestly the starting point. Because if we're all honest, every single one of us is a mess, right? Is anyone here not a mess in their life? Good, nobody. It's going to call you out as a liar. We're all messed up in some way. You know, we win an audience with the lost by meeting them in our common need. And our common need, I'm going to bring it here, our common need is the fact that every single one of us sitting in these pews is broken, sinful, prideful, arrogant, greedy, selfish, lustful, jealous, and bitter. If we're honest, that's what we are. There is no us versus them. There's no superiority. When we're aware of that, we can approach them and just meet them in our commonality. And our common need is that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. Let's look at one final example here of Jesus welcoming and engaging sinners. Turn to Matthew. Flip back a little bit. Matthew chapter 9. It should be page 883 if you're using a pew Bible. This is the story of Jesus calling Matthew to be his disciple. All right, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. 
When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Excuse me. So again, we have just kind of a scene here of Jesus initiating a conversation with someone. He saw Matthew as he's kind of walking, lays his eyes on Matthew, and says, follow me. Something was obviously extremely compelling about Jesus because Matthew immediately got up and followed him. And what happens next is really intriguing because we see Jesus engaging Matthew again and Matthew with a bunch of his sinner friends in normal day-to-day activity. We see him sharing a meal with Matthew and a bunch of sinners at his house. And I think a lot of times, I know I've done this, I've kind of heard this from people, when someone becomes a new Christian or they're kind of dabbling with the church, there's kind of this temptation that we want to pull them out of their circle of friends. We want to take them away from kind of their people of influence, and we want to get them just hanging around church people, you know, so that you know, good church people can kind of rub off on them. But Jesus didn't take Matthew out of his circle of friends at all. And I find it fascinating that as soon as Matthew decided to follow Christ, he said, hey, he encouraged him to spend time with his lost friends. And not only did he encouraged him, he joined him, he said, hey, let's have a meal at your house, bring a bunch of your sinner friends, and we're going to spend time together. For me, like I said, growing up, you know, I was kind of taught, stay away from bad people, because if, if you hang out with those people, Justin, they're going to rub off on you. They're going to, you know, contaminate you somehow, if you will. None of my mentors wanted to see me lose my faith or join the party crowd, but I think we have to wrestle with that type of thinking with how, in regards to how we view the lost. Rather than, trying to be delicate with my words here, rather than thinking that we're going to be contaminated by their sinful ways, it seemed that Jesus took the approach of believing that his love and goodness was going to rub off on them. He kind of thought of it in the opposite way. And like I said, there's times where we need to be wise with who we spend our time with for sure. But if we're followers of Christ... That means in a very real way that the power and love and compassion of Jesus Christ lives inside of us through his spirit. And if we truly believe that, what can we fear? Some of you are like, man, nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. What can we possibly be afraid of? If we, if we honestly believe that, a lot of us don't live into that reality every day. And so we're fearful, you know. What do we have to be afraid of? Rather than thinking and believing that we're going to be contaminated by their sinful ways, can we dare to believe that the power that resides in us through Jesus Christ and His Spirit, that that's going to rub off on people, just like it rubbed off on Jesus when He spent time with sinners? And this topic of, you know, intentionally pursuing lost people and being a friend of sinners It's one most Christians agree with. I don't have to probably pull your guys' arms to make you agree with this. Scripture is pretty clear that Jesus loved lost people and spent a lot of time with sinners. And we should probably do the same. 
but oftentimes we don't. There are some people here who are really good at living this out for sure. You're like, man, I'm always engaging sinners, and that's awesome. But I think there's quite a few of us, this is a struggle for us. We know, man, Jesus pursued lost people. He engaged them. He expressed interest in their life. He spent time with them. But oftentimes we're kind of over here, and we don't do that. We just kind of live in a Christian bubble. So I want to open the floor up a little bit, if we could be so vulnerable, as to ask why. Why is there often that gap? And that disconnect, what is it that keeps us from living this out, of being a true friend of sinners? What is it that keeps you from living this out? The floor is open, so. What's that? Yeah, yeah, fear of temptation. You're going to, yeah, you're going to fall in their ways, sure. Griff. Yeah, okay, yeah. Fear that other Christians might judge us. Ooh, man, he's hanging out with that crowd. Bad. Jake. Yeah. Yeah, fear that our own securities might be exposed. Yeah, that's good. What's that? Yeah, fear of rejection. Good. Mr. Wills. That's what you're going to say? All right, you guys are on it. Brilliant minds think alike. What else, Gary? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, fear that harm might come to us if we associate with them, sure. We like that safety and that comfort and security. Fear of what it's going to cost us, the time, commitment, the the spiritual energy that we're going to have to deliver to people we're trying to love and honor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Afraid of what it's going to cost us and the time that's going to go into that. Man, you guys are rolling, yes. Oh, that's good, yeah. Yeah, that's good. So if you're trying to have this conversation with someone who maybe is a Muslim or a Buddhist or, you know, things like that, fear that they're going to know more than you and be able to trump you, so you just kind of sit back and you're quiet. Yeah. Yeah, fear that we don't know enough. I've... I hear that all the time. Cool. Anything else? Man, yes. This is awesome. Well, my new excuse is, well, I have to take care of my own family first. And then uh, if there's any time left over, then I can see church people. And then if there's any time left over, then I can spend time with God. So it's never an question. Yeah, we've got to take care of our own family first, right? So we do that. That's top priority. Then we spend time with our church friends. And then if there's a little bit of leftover scrap, we give that to lost people that might need to hear about Jesus. And oftentimes they don't get much. That's good. I like that. Maybe there's a little more of a genuine judgmental attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes maybe we're way more judgmental than what we're even aware of or would like to admit. Definitely. 
Anything else? That was like the most this church, I think, has ever spoken in my life. That was epic. Thank you. You guys made my day. That was awesome. I think if, for me, I mean, just to be honest, that there's a big gap in my life in this area because I don't think I often value the same things that God values. I mean, that is just honest to God fact. I am so concerned, like someone said, building my own little life of comfort and safety and security and wealth and success and money. want to make sure, you know, I'm taken care of and my wife's taken care of. And just completely, I just completely disregard the fact that there are thousands of people just in this city that need to hear what I've experienced and the love that I've received from God. But I'm so occupied, you know, building my own little empire that they're out of sight, out of mind for me. If I'm not... If I'm not seeing them, I'm definitely not thinking about them. I'm not praying about them. And I'm sure as heck not going to pursue them. I live in this safe little Christian bubble a lot while completely disregarding the fact that if Jesus was a friend of sinners, that should probably be a pretty important part of my life as well. Uh, Many of you are familiar with an author named uh, Donald Miller. He had this to say. He said, The life theme of every major character in Scripture, every leader who follows God is the same. They are participating with God to save many lives. Abraham is used by God to save many lives, and so is Moses. David saves lives when he cooperates with God, and so does Solomon with all his wisdom. The apostles who built the early church were single-focused. Save many lives. If we would like to participate in what God is doing in the world, we must help him save many lives. And there's nothing more important that we could give our lives to than joining God in his mission of saving many lives. And that can look several different ways. One of the top ones being primarily our call and privilege to help reconcile the lost to their heavenly father. What could possibly be more important than that? in our lives? What could possibly be more important than us partnering with God and helping lost people be reconciled to their Heavenly Father? And perhaps we often feel discontent. I hear that a lot. I'm just discontent in my life. Things aren't going well. I don't know what to do. Maybe we wonder what life is about because we haven't truly dedicated our lives to following the footsteps of Jesus. And the footsteps of Jesus will always lead us to broken people in need of a Savior. The footsteps of Jesus will always lead us to broken people in need of a Savior. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Period. It's not up for debate or discussion. So who are the lost people in your life that need to be reconciled to their Heavenly Father? Do you even have lost people in your life? Are you pursuing them, engaging them, initiating conversations with them? Do you know the story of the kid that sits next to you in biology or chemistry or history or math class? Do you know what the coworker that you share an office with is actually going through in their life? 
If we are to follow Jesus, we have to be people who pursue and engage the lost. God wants us, as that quote said, to be people who bring love and peace and flourishing to our cities in which we live. God is in the business of reconciling those to himself. He's in the business of saving many lives. And he's asking us today, and he's asking you today, if you'll join him on his mission of saving many lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. We, I don't even think we fathom it half the time, God, or even are aware of how great you are. So God, forgive us for that. Forgive me of that, God. And as Bob said last week, how holy you are. I don't even think we're even aware of it. God, you have met us and redeemed so many of us in this room. God, and we have the responsibility and more the privilege, God, of reconciling people to you, restoring people to right relationship, God. Jesus, I pray you would convict us, tug on our hearts, show us who are the people in our lives, God, that need a friend, that need to hear the good news that we have experienced firsthand and been set free from, God, and been forgiven of our sins and our faults, God. Help us to live in awareness, God, of who's around us. Help us to be aware of our own sin and maybe our own judgmental, hypocritical spirit at times, God. Help us to be aware of that so that we can just engage people in this city who are lost with no agenda other than just simply being their friend and wanting to show them how great you are. So God, we thank you for just this word. God, I pray that whatever it is you might be speaking or spoke to just each person sitting in these pews, God, that we would wrestle with it today and this week and that we would find someone to just process just this information with God. Um, God, just be with us just um, in the remainder of our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and stand with us. We sing one last song.